Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And I feel like we need some hollow notes playing in the background for this episode. Man-eater. Yeah. Not quite man-hater, but the same sentiment. You could also sing man-eater as man-hater. Oh, here she comes. She's a man-hater. Yeah, see, it works. Yeah, perfect. Also, I know what our next career move is. A Hollow Notes cover band. Yeah, the feminist Hollow Notes cover band. Maybe like Holland Ovaries. <laughs> Holland Yogurt. Holland Yogurt. <laughs> All right. Done. <laughs> Wait for our tour information. It'll be coming out soon. <laughs> uh, so speaking of man-haters, though... A little fun fact that I discovered while researching for this episode. Manhater is an entry in the dictionary, the Uh Merriam-Webster Dictionary, but it's not the gender-specific noun (laughs) that we're talking about today in the podcast, uh, which is manhater as in what some people assume feminists are. Uh, According to the dictionary, a manhater is a person who just hates mankind. So just a misanthrope. Oh. Yeah. So like a more literal man, human hater. Yeah. Um, But when we get into more specifics, uh, the word that we're really talking about is misandry. And there are a lot of people who've never heard the word misandry before, even though uh, once once you find out what it is, you'll be like, I'm going to get a black cat and name it misandry. (laughs) Or I'll name my first daughter misandry. So... Do share with our fair listeners what misandry is. Oh, I mean, basically, the hatred of men. It's it's the counterpoint to misogyny, which is hatred of women. And it turns out that etymologically, misogyny is way older than misandry. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, it goes all the way back to the 17th century. The Oxford English Dictionary actually says that... The origin of misogyny goes back to 1618 and that it was introduced by the play Swetnam the Woman Hater. Um, apparently Swetnam was like a real life dude named Joseph Swetnam who published this super lady hating misogynistic pamphlet that ended up kicking up a bunch of controversy and dissenting pamphlets. It's basically like a Twitter, Twitter storm pre um, electricity. <laughs> I was going to say pre-internet, but it's like, you know, pre-industrial rev- revolution. And the main character was named Misogynos. And of course, from Misogynos, we get misogyny, which got into dictionaries by 1656, which seems like a pretty swift adoption since this is pre like everything. Yeah. The hatred of women was apparently pretty trendy enough to name it and then dictionaryify it. Um, but misandry <laughs> doesn't roll around as a thing that has a word until the 19th century, actually, in the late 19th century at that. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary says that the first use of misandry was in an 1882 magazine article. And the quote was, no man whom she'd cared for had ever proposed to marry her. She couldn't account for it, and it was a growing source of bitterness of misogyny as well as misandry. So she was just more of a misanthrope. Yeah, she hated everybody and was was angry at everyone. And, I mean, there is some pretty important context of the time, right? Like, we don't get the word misandry 
meaning hating men, not hating mankind, but hating men, until the suffrage movement is in swing. I mean, this is when you see the word feminist switching from meaning feminine quality, so, you know, ladylike, to someone who's a proponent of women's rights and man-hating just kind of went along with that, I guess. Well, sure. (laughs) Immediately. Well, sure, because think about all of the anti-suffrage propaganda at the time Mm -hmm. portraying women as being, of course, ugly, uh, but also wanting nothing to do with men while also emulating men. Like we were going to be become men who wanted nothing to do with men. We just wanted men to take care of our babies while we went out to vote. We voted every day. We're just going to go out and vote every day, every single day, about whatever we can, whatever we can possibly vote about. And, uh, you know, the reason that uh, Kristen asked me to define misandry is because still today a lot of people aren't super familiar with the word. And certainly it was not common in the decades after, even after it was introduced in that magazine article, it was not common. Yeah, so um, in 1999, Ellen Schoen Brockman wrote a, a piece in the New York Times kind of digging into the origin of misandry. And she cited the first appearance in text, not in 1882, but all the way in 1946, in a British journal of literary criticism called Scrutiny. And she she goes on to note, she and also Meryl Perlman, who wrote about the same thing over at the Columbia Journalism Review, that misandry rarely appears in print before you start seeing it pop up online a lot in the 2010s. Well... The 2010s, which is also the same time you see the rise of portmanteaus like mansplaining. There's like an Internet culture war going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you also, too, have um, more community building among men's rights activists who um, are are all all about uprooting society's misandry and, and blame feminism for what they perceive to be misandry taking over our uh, our world. But we did have a blip during uh, women's lib when you might, 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 might hear misandry, but usually we were just called man-haters. And by we, I mean feminists. <laughs> you know, oh, those women, they're just, they, they're just man-haters. They don't want to shave their underarms. They're all lesbians and they just hate men. Well, so Brockman says this thing that I don't entirely understand. She says that uh, she's surprised that misandry doesn't even make it into all the dictionaries, considering how misandrous humor is now politically correct. What is she just talking about the uptick in talking about it? No. So Brockman is writing back in 1999, and she meant uh, we are totally fine portraying men as dolts. So think about uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor on Home Improvement, who was like uh, the arch villain of my childhood uh, because he bothered my parents so much because he made men look like such idiots. Oh, interesting. So, um, and you also see that reflected in commercials that are thankfully becoming much less common of the bumbling dad. Um, and so that's what she means in talking about misandrous humor being politically correct. Um, but 
I have a pet theory that it's also partly due to the fact that women are the linguistic trendsetters. This is something we've talked about pretty extensively in the podcast, and this goes all the way back centuries, I mean, back to the day of misogynos on stage, where women have usually uh, forged the slang and our ways of talking um, that have pushed things forward. And if that's the case, then it's likelier that women would be talking about misogyny a lot more than they would be talking about misandry. Hmm. But that, again, is just a theory. So the idea of man-hating and being a man-hater um, you know, it's it's not a new concept to accuse a woman who is fighting for women's rights or fighting to have a voice at all. It's not it's not a new concept for her to be accused of hating men when all she's trying to do is get up on the platform herself. But an interesting little uh, historical trip we took in preparing for this episode was learning about the woman who sort of became in the 1960s and 70s. A sort of poster child for man-hating. Oh, yeah. And this is something, too, that comes up in a lot of YouTube comment-style criticism from men's rights activist types. And I say this anecdotally from what I have read uh, on the more than 500 videos on the Stuff Mom Never Told You YouTube channel of um, really uh, generalizing the acts of one or two women. And Valerie Solanas was really the first who put some fuel in that fire to say, see, feminists, feminists do hate men. Feminists dangerous. really, really, really hate men. And here is an example. It's like as long as they have one piece of evidence, then that must mean then uh, we're, we're, we're all susceptible to, to catching this feminist plague. So Valerie Solanas is one of the most fascinating people that I've read about lately. She was a queer writer and the author of something that we actually talked about in our podcast a while back on um, radical feminism. <laughs> it's this thing called The Scum Manifesto. She wrote it in 1967 originally, but she would continually revise it. And SCUM is an acronym for Society for Cutting Up Men, of which she writes that she was its sole member. <laughs> she wasn't really looking, you know, for like gal pals to nope. join scum. Nope. Solanus was scum. Yeah, and she even advertised the scum manifesto in the Village Voice as costing a dollar for men and 25 cents for women. Love it. Um, but don't think she was trying to be a feminist hero and address like the wage gap or anything. She even described feminists as schmucks, dupes, and know-nothings. She was just like she was the solo member of her group. Like, that's how she kind of saw life. She Valerie Solanas was out for her own means and ends and really was not interested in lifting up women with her as a group. Uh, nor was she interested in lifting up men, no. um, <laughs> which if you read a little bit of the Scum Manifesto, you'll quickly catch on to to her drift. In it, she writes, because no aspect of society is relevant to women, civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females should overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, and eliminate the male sex. Which is everything that men 
who are afraid of women and feminists are afraid that we are aiming to do. Yeah, we want a Lorena Bob at you. Yeah, and then send you to an island. Although that sounds kind of nice. I would love to get an island. Yeah, I need a vacation. But getting back to Solanus, before she writes the Scum Manifesto, she had graduated from the University of Maryland with a degree in psychology. Uh, she grew up, you know, in a, in a fine middle class home. Uh, but when she went for her master's, she ended up dropping out because of sexism. She was just over it. And she ended up in after kind of bouncing around a bit. She lands in New York and she is intermittently homeless. She's not very good at like <laughs> making consistent money. Um, she is known as a hustler. And there was this trick that she would do to men on the sidewalk. Yeah, so she would get their attention and say, hey, hey, buddy, for a dollar, I'll tell you a dirty word. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, baby. And they'd give her a dollar and she'd say, men. And she <laughs> loved it. She <laughs> loved that trick. The joke never got old to Solanos. Yeah, exactly. And we have to give a hat tip to Brianne Foz and her 2004 book, Valerie Solanos, The Defiant Life of the Woman Who Wrote Scum and Shot Andy Warhol. At which point, listeners unfamiliar with her bio are like, what? Andy Warhol? Yeah, and it is worth noting, and we will explain this in just a second, um, but it is worth noting that Brianne Foz did not want to include any reference to Andy Warhol in the title of this biography because Valerie Solanus's complex and turbulent existence was much deeper and her her existence just extended beyond the borders of what history has placed her in, which is the woman who shot Andy Warhol because she was angry. Well, and how ironic for her legacy to be um, attached to a man, you know, yeah. to be interpreted through a guy because this woman wrote Scum Manifesto. Exactly. And so, you know, while she's in New York playing tricks on men in the street, uh, Solanus ends up sort of being befriended by Andy Warhol and the factory crew. She appeared in his film, I, a Man, and she had begged Warhol to produce her eschatological <laughs> avant-garde play called Up Your Ass. Um, but it was, it was too far out for him. And as Foz writes, Up Your Ass is definitely ahead of its time. Uh, still, she argues. Um, and Solanus basically, because she would later be diagnosed with schizophrenia, basically was under the impression or delusion that Andy Warhol had taken control of all of her, all of the rights to her writing, um, including the Scum Manifesto and also this play. And she was just furious that he would not support the play or publish, help publish the manifesto. Yeah, well, she she specifically wanted him to produce Up Your Ass, and she gave him a screenplay, which he ended up misplacing, and that set her off because she it fed into this idea that he was just hiding it from her, that he was selling it and going to make money off of it, um, that she you know was losing all of her rights to everything, which which wasn't the case. Warhol insisted, like Valerie. <laughs> I just cannot produce this thing. It is really intense. Um, so on June 3rd, 1968, Andy Warhol and his pals are kind of hanging out and sh- shooting the breeze. And Solanus walks in 
and shoots Andy Warhol three times. And she also shoots a couple of the other people who are there and mm-hmm. basically said, like, at one point, one of the, one of the dudes, like, please don't shoot me. She'd already shot Warhol, who looked like he, he could have been dead. Um, and he says, please don't shoot me. And she just says, I have to do this. Bang. And then she scrams. But, of course, in that darkly ironic twist, that act forever defines her through a man. And and she realized it. I mean, in her lifetime, she realized, like, I, I can't believe that now I am linked forever. You know, this is a thing that would go on to define her life and career still now, because we're still talking about it. And we went back and read the initial report of the shooting in The Village Voice, and the headline was The Shot That Shattered the Velvet Underground. And... Warhol, you know, is like rushed to the hospital. Uh, there is just a media frenzy, as you would imagine. And he is in critical condition. I mean, she she got him good. Um, meanwhile, Solanus goes to the police department a few hours later and uh, turns herself in. And <laughs> of course, there was a throng of press there, too. And Solanus tells them, if you want to know why I did this, you need to read the Scum Manifesto. Excellent guerrilla marketing campaign. I know. She was such a (laughs) self-promoter to the extreme. Um, But of course, the media, you know, took Scum Manifesto and were like, oh, what? Here is a man-hating feminist. And media reports on her described her as a man-hater and mannish. Yeah. Oh, so outside the norm. And another thing that really riled her up, of course, is that not only did Andy Warhol not die, but when he recovered, he was very understanding, forgiving, and sympathetic towards her, which just enraged her because she thought that it was another way of controlling her and controlling the narrative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was deeply, deeply traumatized by the shooting, not surprisingly, but he urged uh, the criminal justice system to really take it easy on Solanus, um, which, you know, she was charged with felonious assault and possession of a deadly weapon. And I don't have her final sentence in front of me, but I want to say she served, what, three years in a psychiatric hospital? Yeah. So she didn't do like hard prison time or anything. She went to some psychiatric hospitals, which that was another thing that enraged her. She wanted to do the hard time. So meanwhile, like as the case is getting off the ground, radical feminist and chapter president of uh, the National Organization for Women, Ty Grace Atkinson, urges the organization at large to defend Solanus. Like, y'all, we need to step up. This woman has followed through on the rage that so many of us have been experiencing. Yeah, and she was not alone in this sentiment of, like, let's circle the wagons around our ragey feminist sister. There were several accounts of several women, one who was even living in Cuba at the time, and she's like, oh, I got to get back to the States. And she ended up founding, was it Cell 16, which is another rad femme group, uh, and listeners, if you have any more information about them, I'd love to hear it. Um, but there were a lot of women who just felt this is the bat signal. Like, we need to be in the States. We need to be in New York where all of this is happening. Like, we've gotten the ragey feminist man-hating call. Let's do this. Now, meanwhile, of course, Betty Friedan, who is at the, at the head of now, was like, uh, 
No, <laughs> she didn't want to touch Solanus with a 10 foot pole. In fact, she sent a telegram at one point stating, like, do not in any way associate Valerie Solanus with the National Organization for Women. We have nothing to do with her. And I'm sure Solanus was like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, because for Betty Friedan, she saw Solanus, who was a queer woman, as first of all, uh, a quote-unquote lavender menace, which we have a whole episode on that if you want to learn more. But Friedan uh, referred to lesbians as the lavender menace, a menace potentially to the credibility of the National Organization for Women because she and others were terrified that this whole stereotyping of feminists as lesbian man-haters would just ruin their chances of being taken seriously and getting feminist legislation passed. Yeah, and so the trial starts and Solanus actually waives her right to counsel. She wants to represent herself, but she brings on the fabulous and incredible Florence Kennedy as her legal advisor. And basically, uh, Kennedy argues that Solanus is not insane. She's a feminist activist. And while Solanus is like, yeah, no, I'm not insane. I meant to do this. She's also like, no, no, I'm not doing this out of feminist rage. I'm doing this because I'm pissed. Yeah, I mean, she it was more like an activist on behalf of herself because yeah. she wanted her play to be produced. Um, also, side note, uh, Florence Kennedy was known for her outrageous outfits that she would wear. And by outrageous, I just mean she would, she wore a signature cowboy hat and lots of vests and, and pants and pants and those pants. Ooh, not they, the cowboy hat. Yeah. They riled up the judge mm-hmm. who reprimanded Florence Kennedy for her unladylike courtroom appearance. Um, and I, I just wanted to, Toss that in to, to to give a little flavor for what what life was like back in in the seventies. Well, Kennedy and Tigrace Atkinson and others sort of recognize this for they they took the bat signal rather literally and they took this as uh the moment to sort of move in. This was a great moment. This is a great moment for me to wear pants in the courtroom and talk back to the judge. This is a great moment for all of us to circle up and start the revolution and bring feminism, regardless of Solanus's true um, motivations. This is a great opportunity for us to put feminism front and center on the front page of the newspaper. So there was some some feminist theater, in a way, going on. Um, But the thing is, again, like Solanus considered feminist schmucks. And some of this back and forth that you see of her, you know, allowing Kennedy to come in as her uh, legal advisor and to some degree um, working with Ty Grace Atkinson, she would very quickly write them off and sometimes even uh, have violent outbursts against them because she had no interest in contributing to a collective feminism. She was only out for herself. And now, obviously, like a, a lot of her erratic behavior was a product of um, her schizophrenia. Um, but at the time, I mean, it's just yeah, it's I did not know about this chapter in second wave history because it's 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 bizarre um, and kind of unthinkable uh, to rally around a woman because she shot a male icon, you know, like. 
Like, I'm not cool with gun violence. <laughs> um, but clearly, I mean, this is just sort of the, the tenor of what was going on. And so it's no surprise that there is a conversation then going on nationally about man-hating and about feminism, because if you are far removed from the movement and don't know what's going on with feminism or feminists, and all you see are feminists aligning themselves with a woman who shot a man and is a so-called man-hater and is mannish. And and she's unrepentant for shooting him, too. Yeah. Then you might start to think, oh, God, are they coming for me? Are the women coming for me with pitchforks and and torches? So while Solanus did nothing but but probably burnish uh, Warhol's reputation even more, she ended up causing a schism within the National Organization for Women and uh, the women's lib movement at large, kind of between the Ty Grace Atkinsons and the Betty for Dance, who were mm-hmm. like, nah, y'all, this is, this is not what we are about. Um, and, and, and again, I mean, like the, the, the tragedy of it is that this woman was mentally unstable. She was schizophrenic and... Police later nicknamed her Scab Lady because um, this is after she w- was kind of in and out of uh, psychiatric wards and she ended up homeless and she would pick at her skin uh, obsessively. And she died in poverty at 52. So, I mean, she's, she's a tragic figure for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and yet she has become the embodiment of this this idea of the man-hating feminist, even though, yes, she hated men, but she wasn't a feminist. Right. But that doesn't matter. Really, it seems to anyone on any side of this uh, event, because she symbolized what people wanted her to symbolize. Yeah. And we're going to get into how Solanus's legacy reverberates still today when we come right back from a quick break. Now, before we get to modern day feminism and the rise of ironic misandry, like those mugs that say like male tears and things like that, um, we want to talk about this piece published in the Village Voice in 1972, written by Joanna Russ, who was uh, writing this in the post Solanus era. So Solanus had happened. All of this panic about uh, misandrist feminists had been stoked. And she writes this essay called The New Misandry. And I got to tell you, Kristen, I had never, even though this piece circulated um, a lot back around 2011, so around the same time that you see that uptick in the use of the word misandry, which had not previously been used a whole ton, I had never read it. And uh, reading it yesterday, before we came into the studio, um, I read it a couple of times because her writing and her concepts are beautiful um, and and sad uh, and tragic because, of course, she's talking about misandry, but its counterpoint is misogyny. And she talks about uh, one quote, for instance, is uh, our men are brought up to hate us. We are brought up to love our men. In other words, of course, when a woman, whether it was a suffragist back in the day or a second waiver right now um, at the time that Russ was writing that piece, if a woman steps 
out of the traditional norm and fights against men, as people would view it. Uh, of course, she's a man hater. She's a misandrist because women are taught to love their men and and hold them as their protectors. And because of that, she says, to be a misandrist, a woman needs considerable ingenuity, originality and resilience. A misogynist requires no such resources, obviously, because patriarchy. And she brings up an excellent point that while there's not a presumption that misogynists want to kill all women or maim all women, there is this bizarre connoting of bloodlust with misandry. Maybe it's because of periods. I don't know. But things get bloody really quickly. when we come for you, the elevator doors will open like in The Shining. Yes. Um, But she says, quote, as if there were no difference between feelings and acts, which, yeah. hello, hysteria, you mm-hmm. know, so, so it makes sense. Um, and then she lays out these eight steps that uh, really summarize sort of the gaslighting effect of this man-hating rhetoric. Yes, and she talks, she basically explains the concept of the oppressed being expected to be the ones who are saintly and pure and well-behaved and not complain about their oppressor. And this is, you know, a a similar kind of argument made uh, by James Baldwin and other people at the time who, um, during the civil rights movement, were um, tired of people of color being expected to remain nonviolent. Yeah. You know, whereas white people turning violent is somehow okay. Yeah. So what are what are these steps that Russ talks about? One, you do something nasty to me. Two, I hate you. Three, you find it uncomfortable to be hated. Four, you think how nice it would be if I didn't hate you. Five, you decide I ought not to hate you because hate is bad. Six, good people don't hate. Seven, because I hate, I'm a bad person. Eight, It is not what you did to me that makes you hate me. It is my own bad nature. I, not you, am the cause of my hating you. Yeah. Uh, It's like the apologies of like, well, I'm sorry if that made you feel bad. Yeah, I'm sorry if if you got offended. The Mm -hmm. backhanded apology. Exactly. And so is that why, sort of, in a nutshell, men's rights activists are so upset when you drink out of a male tears mug? Like when you're trying to make light of a situation... And they're like, no, you can't not like me. I'm going to kill you now. Oh, I I don't even want to start to try to get inside the head <laughs> of a men's rights activist. I mean, you could say they don't get the joke or they don't think the joke is funny. Um, they're, oh, yeah, there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of things that could be said. Um, but I'd really never considered how. The whole man-hating thing, calling women man-haters, calling feminist man-haters in particular, is really used as a red herring. It's such a loaded charge that really gaslights you. Because if you are a man-hater, like, what, what a, what an, what an odious person. And no, I'm, I'm, I'm not like saying like, I mean, cause it's cool to hate men. Um, but just how that specific language is, has such a chilling effect. Yeah, that you should want to still be under that norm of loving men and keeping them on their 
privileged pedestal. Sure. Yeah. It's. I mean, because there's like a threatening edge to it, too. It's like, oh, well, I mean, because if, if you're a man hater, you know, like no one's going to like you. You're not. No one's going to want to sleep with you and find you pretty, et cetera. There's just like that that Joanna Russ essay, I think, just did a phenomenal job, especially considering the time too. like kind of reading it in, in the mindset of 1972, as much as someone who wasn't alive then can um, really offered some deeper perspective on what's usually just like a knee jerk label. Yeah. And it makes sense then that some men and women both are uncomfortable with misandry. She writes, to accept misandry is to perceive what dreadful messes are made of our lives, even if we are lucky enough to escape the worst effects of our social structure. There are two kinds of women who never hate men, the very lucky and the very blind. So that's a lot to say. And I would imagine that if you're a guy listening to that, um, that's a lot to hear. So I'm curious what what made you want to read the essay a number of times and really what jumped out to you? Like, what, what do you feel about like that blunt of a statement? Um, honestly, it was just the, the overarching feeling of it that I got reading it, which, like I said, was one of like power in naming it, but also just the, the sadness of like, guys, we are living in the dark. Like, let's turn the lights on. Nobody has to hate each other. Like, but we have to have some real talk with each other. We have to look each other in the eye and recognize, like, you do act out from a position of privilege. I am not up on that pedestal with you. I am the oppressed, and you still expect me to love you because of my oppression. And I just thought that... It was sort of a brilliant and and I especially loved it because it was in the context of 1972, but it's still so relevant today. I just thought it was a beautiful piece of writing that summed up the feelings on both sides of, listen, I'm mad at you for oppressing me. I'm tired of being oppressed. And then the attitude of, well, no, you should stay oppressed. Otherwise, I hate you. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, and so. That leads us into this uh, digital ironic feminism um, that has been cropping up more in like 2013, 14. I feel like it's kind of faded a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a terrific piece by Jillian Horowitz, which is how we ended up on that um, Village Voice essay from 72. Um, but Jillian Horowitz over at Digital America wrote uh, an essay called <laughs> Collecting Male Tears, Misandry and Weaponized Femininity on the Internet. I love the idea of weaponized femininity. I know, I know. Um, so she cites Joanna Russ as describing ironic misandry as a form of creative, radical feminism. And I was like, oh, yeah. tell me more, Jillian Horowitz. For the feminist who wants major structural change. And it's like, wait, how can we achieve major structural change by using, like, pink glittery gifts of a spinning thing that says misandry or male tears or something? But she argues that it is that super cute, hyper-feminine packaging that weaponizes that feminist anger and the devalued trappings of femininity. Yeah, and and to back up for a second, like, these days, MRA types, men's rights activist types, contend that feminism in particular 
has rendered white American men in particular an oppressed minority because misandry. Yeah, misandry being, quote, an institutional enshrinement of man-hating, as she puts it. So when we then deploy ironic misandry in the face of that as a response to uh, men's rights activists crying oppression um, and doing it in that package of weaponized femininity, it's basically saying that, hey, sexist dudes, your objectification suggests that women are nothing more than these harmless, cute objects here for your pleasure. But in fact, in the core of it, you Mm -hmm. see this right here. We are mad and we despise everything that you are standing for right now. Um, And and that is also like why I prefer to respond to um, rude dudes on the Internet who, who come on, say the stuff mom never told you Facebook page. And say ridiculous, uh, make ridiculous allegations of misandry with the manicure emoji, just saying, I have no time. I'm just painting my nails. You're not going to disturb me. And also the cuteness of a lot of the ironic misandry media makes it impossible to land an effective comeback. Yeah. Like it's punching a pillow. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's kind of a way to troll the trolls. To totally. Tr- to totally. troll the misogynist because it's like, what, you can't you can't just laugh at me using a, a male tears mug like I'm laughing at you. And that gets to the Margaret Atwood quote of men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Yeah. Um, but the gift that it has been rolling around in my head now for the past 15 minutes is <laughs> the clip from uh, nine to five. When uh, Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, and Lily Tomlin are dressed as like like yield maidens <laughs> and are cheersing their goblets, and uh, the gift says misandry in this beautiful <laughs> pink font as they as they cheers. Well, it's also sort of a, a a take on like why do you think that women just celebrating womanhood and being feminists automatically means that we hate men. Like that's it's calling out the ridiculousness of assuming that all women who are feminists are just out to kill men and manhood. Well, and for me, like that, that nine to five gif is so joyful. Okay, And it's also the weaponizing of our like feminine and feminist joy not only our rage okay but really weaponizing feminist joy because we are supposed to be scared as women of an allegation that we are man haters yeah because what is worse than being undesired by a dude being called ugly or fat or whatever yeah if we're speaking in like patriarchal terms so by flipping that on its head and saying oh yeah i hate all of this like patriarchal garbage and look, I'm hanging with my ladies and and cheersin because you all are are now terrified of us apparently. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there there's some interesting layers to it that don't sit well with everyone, of course, because really it's the internet. Does anything sit well with everybody? Answer no. Um. Chelsea Fagan, for instance, over at Thought Catalog, argues that. Ironic misandry smacks of privilege because it's collapsing all male identities into the one like white supremacist, capitalistic, but patriarchal, so on and so forth. But does it? 
is it not just a like a quote unquote joyful reaction to the toxic masculinity that oppresses women? It's not yes. like it's not like I'm drinking my coffee out of my male tears mug at my male friends or my boyfriend, you know, like men that I love and who's, you know, men that I love and who have a wonderful place in my life. Like, well, and it also misses the point that argument, like, like, I get that for sure. Like there are many male identities that are absolutely marginalized in our society. Um, but that idea that it's bad because Privilege, I think, is is missing the point that um, this ironic misandry isn't about shaming individual people, no, but rather just trying to dismantle or simply like live within a patriarchal society and still laugh at the end of the day. Otherwise, we will cry <laughs> female tears. Yeah, and I mean, as as Amanda Hess points out in August of 2014. Guys, we're not actually bathing in male tears. We're not individually trying to go from house to house, laughing at men and kicking them in the shins and bathing in their tears. It's all a sarcastic and ridiculous response to actual patriarchy and misogyny. Yeah, I mean, you have all sorts of sarcastic hashtags that have popped up. Um, not all men, which we absolutely overuse on this podcast, but yep. I stand by it. Sure. Um, also the hashtag masculinity so fragile. Um, and someone could easily say, well, all right, it's a joke, but let's flip the gender script. What if the joke was about women? And the answer is that is not a joke. That is patriarchy. Yeah. But when we do talk about these uh, misandry jokes, uh, Amanda has talked to a co-founder of The Toast, who is now, um, I believe she's a contributing editor at The Establishment, Nicole Cliff, who is just brilliant. And if you don't follow her on Twitter, you absolutely should. Um, yeah, she, Nicole Cliff, is the reason I'm watching Poldark now on PBS. It's a terrible show, but I can't stop watching it. <laughs> I've never even heard of it. Oh, we'll talk later. All right. Uh, so... Hess asked her, um, you know, about ironic misandry and, and the joke because the toast had, has, has made a lot of brilliant satire around that theme. And Cliff essentially said, listen, if we overanalyze this, it ruins the joke. And half of the fun is just the fact that, uh, MRAs can't stand it. Yeah. Can't stand it. It makes them real mad. And, um, sometimes it can, it can be fun to troll the trolls. And that it's it's funny that it's pushing the idea of this vast underground anti-male conspiracy that we're all in like Dr. Evil's lair underground, like bathing ritualistically every morning in male tears. Like, that's funny because, guys, seriously, really? Like, it's all right. <laughs> well, and Hess also, and, and I agree with this, she thinks that it offers some relief from the intensity sometimes, of self-identifying as a feminist, particularly on the Internet. Yeah. And also the critique that that can invite, not from MRAs, but from other self-identified feminists. Mm -hmm. Um, And Hess writes, it can be freeing then to instead adopt an ironic stance that allows women to identify against what they are clearly not, a cartoonish man-hater bent on total male destruction. Yeah, and Hess' friend, uh, Jess Zimmerman, who calls herself a professional misandrist, uh, which is 
also part of the joke, um, responded to this article in which she was heavily quoted. And she also clarifies that, like, hey, my ironic misandry that I, like, make a living around writing about, uh, it doesn't mean that I want to kill all men. But my ironic misandry is pointed at killing the concept of masculinity that breeds all of the stuff that women have seen during the 2016 election, for instance. I mean, she was writing in 2014, but I would say that everything she's saying is also really valid for us right now because you have people like Donald Trump who've sort of helped open the door to even more online abuse, if that's even possible. He's opened the locker room doors wide yeah. open. And uh for listeners listening to this episode in the future, we're recording this about, what, two weeks away from the 2016 election. So we are just My, wound up tight. And, you know, Zimmerman in her piece does point out that, like, hey, I have all of these guy friends who think it's hilarious. Like, they get it and they consider themselves, quote unquote, misandrists as well. It's it's almost a way of separating, like, the cool guys who get it and support what women and feminists are doing from the guys who clearly... <laughs> maybe along the MRA lines, don't get it, and that she does want to reassure all of her dude bro friends that she is not trying to kill any of them. Share your thoughts with us, listeners. Uh, MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at manhaters, nope, at MomStuffPodcast, or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. All right, I've got one from Hillary in response to our episode, Oprah Was Not Built in a Day. She says it was a truly great podcast. Uh, I very much appreciate your willingness to question the concept of failing fast and to suggest that this sort of failure is a luxury reserved for those few who have a very large and soft safety net. I've been a corporate lawyer for more than 20 years, working first in a large national law firm dominated by upper middle class white men. Now I serve as in-house counsel and the only woman in the C-suite at a tech startup. In my view, Fail Fast is a new business self-help scheme that is as helpful to personal happiness as the secret is to true spiritual enlightenment. As Oprah would say, here's what I know for sure. One, those who fail fast don't fail, not in the way that 99% of the populace would define failure. Failure does not put their lives or livelihoods in peril. To be fair, they have no real experience with failure. It is a distant and theoretical concept that has no place in their 1% rarefied reality, like minimum wage and community college. Two, for those who fail, quote-unquote fail, failure has no tangible consequence. Losing money is a demerit, not a disaster. They don't get the highest grade in the class or the winningest score on the tennis court. Losing money is a version of humiliation, not real loss. After all, the money lost wasn't made flipping burgers for 50 years at Wendy's. It wasn't even theirs to lose. It was their corporation's funds and debts and dollars. And that money is not gone, not really. They can always get more, and not from payday loans or the local loan shark, but from a variety of sources, from friends and family, yes, this is a real term used in the financing community, to bridge financing another term of art. Put simply, the fake failurati won't worry about bus fare. They don't ride the bus. They won't scrape together rent. They already own their house. And they certainly won't go hungry unless it is part of the latest cleanse. Three, 
Failing fast is a turn of phrase that literally turns bad choices into premeditated strategies. In all of the deals I've done, from publicly traded companies to startups that thrived and startups that died, I have never seen any leader of a new company or product line or tech offering have a clear, crisp, and consistent strategy against which failure could be identified, measured, and quantified. Without a rubric for success, failure is a fuzzy and amorphous thought that can't be captured except in retrospect. Don't get me wrong, there is no need for rigid rules and specific strategies. In the world that I work in, business is art, not science, so the absence of scientific method is appropriate and necessary. But for those who want to make business into something magical and knowable only to a small group of wizards, well, you have to believe in the Emerald City and dismiss the idea that a few smart people made some educated guesses who were also lucky and had timing on their sides. In other words, you have to believe in alchemy and wizards and revisionist history. She goes on to say um, that failure, true failure, not quote-unquote failure, never comes fast. It is so very slow. So, she says, my favorite women of the podcasting world, let me confirm your suspicions. Oprah is the definition of hard-won success. There is not a thing about her or her history that smacks of failure. Oprah just found her path through trial and error. Mostly, she did the bravest thing a person can do. She let herself be known. Well, thank you, Hillary, for all of your valuable perspective. I have a letter here from Kate, also in response to our episode on failing And she writes, I wanted to start this out by saying thank you. Thanks for your podcast in general, which often helps me organize my thoughts about social and political issues and gives me a ton of cool things to talk about with friends and family. And thank you specifically for this most recent episode on failure. Like you, a lot of these ideas in this episode hit me really close to home. For example, I recently had a conversation with my family in which they were encouraging me to apply for a promotion at work. My response was that I wasn't sure I would get it, so I wanted to wait until next year when it was more certain. I never realized this was such a common refrain among women. I've only been with a company for half a year, but I'm doing the same work as folks who are one and two levels above me. Thanks to your podcast, I've decided to face my fears and bring this up in my performance review next month and ask to be promoted. If I get it, you too will be directly responsible for helping a woman in tech move up the leadership ladder. Hooray you! If I don't get it, at least I tried and it won't have to be quite so scary the next time. Oh, Kate, that is so, so great to hear. And I wish you all of the best luck in that performance review. And I will tell you, as someone who, who works in digital media, um, the, the more, the more data you can bring to, to buffer your case, the better. Uh, data, you, you know, you know. Uh, but Kate, that's, that's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. And listeners, share your stories with us as well. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about misandry, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 